0: Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Acham, and Acham, the father of Elud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word for us.
1: Everybody was excited to get out of Deuteronomy for a second until Mike got up. (laughs) Church, it's so good to be with you. If you have not already opened your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 1, where we're going to be spending our time looking at the wonderful news of Christmas. before we do that let's pray together as a church father so gracious that you would save a people that you would rule a people in kindness and lord we are opening up your word right now holy spirit we need you we need you to illumine these words and to make the gospel glorious to us the rain reminds me of two responses of Enjoying cold, rainy weather because it reminds us of coziness, and it reminds me of those that look at this and feel downcast. And Lord, I pray for those here that come in joyous that they would be further encouraged in the gospel. And I pray for those that are downcast and feel alone that, Lord, you would lift up their face to see the King of Kings who loves them. And offers good news of exceeding joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in the dream, it feels as if it is some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, Or else, a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her, and Lucy got the feeling you would have when you wake up in the morning and you realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Much like the children in this beloved C.S. Lewis story, Christmas is approaching, And with it comes a variety of feelings and emotions and responses, just like the children. Christ is born is something that we will be saying as a church in just a few short weeks, a statement similar to the one that the beaver said, which had enormous meaning. And for some, Christmas is a season where you're leaning in and you're already provoked to think about Jesus And for others, it's just an annoying time with Christmas music. (laughs) For others, it's a painful season, yet being another reminder of a loss of a loved one or a season in which you can't get what you want or you look at your life and you wonder, how did I get here? But brothers and sisters, the gospel which Christmas points to is the good news that in every season, Jesus can offer hope. Today marks the first Sunday of Advent, and if you're new here, if you're new to this term, it's just a simple term that means coming. It means that Christ is coming, and it's a time where the church has historically looked back and set aside four weeks and the days in between to remember the coming of Jesus Christ The Christmas season is a time of joy because it reminds us of the depth of our need, and we get excited because God stepped out of eternity into time to save us, and it reminds us of the extent of God's love to send us the Son, that this babe swaddled in a manger came because of my sin and your sin, and anybody... That looks at that child is reminded of two things. That child is innocent and that child has come to die for my sins. How much does God love the world? So much so that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes might have everlasting life. That's the good news of Christ is born. But we're not only lifting our eyes for when he came 2,000 years ago, we're also lifting our eyes, church, to the day that he's coming in that glorious future where we're taken out of this world, where there are people fighting wars and shootings and suffering and cancer and the loss of loved ones and financial turmoil Days in which we go, Lord, are you faithful to your promises? Are you going to save us from this mess, this sinful world? This is not my home. Advent is also a season for that. It's a a remembrance and an anticipation of what the Lord has done and what he will do. And that's why we're studying the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. These chapters speak of a king that's coming to rescue his people, a Messiah. And if I could summarize this genealogy, which some of you guys are going, I'm really interested to hear what you're saying. (laughs) It'd be this, that we would rejoice, that we would rejoice. There is reason to rejoice in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the coming of King Jesus that we would rejoice in the fulfillment of all God's promises in the coming of King Jesus. And the way that we're going to see that is in three points. First, the genesis of the king. Second, the need for the king. And lastly, the arrival of the king. So look with me, verse 1. The genesis of the king. The first place that we're going to stop in this genealogy before this long list of names is verse 1. This first verse of Matthew's gospel, I argue, is the title sentence of Matthew's work. Oftentimes when we read Matthew, I'm guilty of this, guys. When we read this, we read book of the genealogy. And so we go, ah, Matthew is just talking about this ginormous list of names. But that's not the case, and that's not what I'm arguing. I think that this verse is the tell, the title of what he's getting across in his whole gospel. The word for genealogy is actually the same word in the original for Genesis. And that word we actually see again in verse 18. If you look down in verse 18, now the birth... That's the same word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so what I think Matthew's doing here is that there is a lot packed in. Of course, this is talking about the list in verse 2 through 17, but I think it's a little bit broader than that. It's talking about a Genesis, and that brings back the book of Genesis. This creation, this new creation, this new thing that's happening What Matthew is saying is that this is the book of Genesis, the new Genesis of Jesus Christ. This isn't the end that Israel was hoping for. It's the end through a new beginning. The end through a new beginning. And that's what our end as the church is. Again, we're anticipating what Christ did 2,000 years ago. But for us, we're asking for the suffering to end, Lord and it's not going to be a stop. We're going to have new creation. We're going to be in heaven where God renews what he started. And that is what Matthew is getting across in his work, in his gospel, that this is the book of Genesis, the Genesis of Jesus Christ. But notice it's not just something new as if we erase what happened prior in the story. No, this is the new Genesis, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very much tied, very much tied to what God has been doing. It's actually a culmination and the climax of all God's plans to save a people unto himself, which leads us to this genealogy. Genealogies, um, here's the, 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 the 101 on, on genealogies in Scripture. They have a very simple purpose, guys, that is to divide the story. I want you to think about the book of Genesis. You got creation, chapters one and two. You got the fall in chapter three. You got Cain and Abel. And then what happens before we get to Noah? There's only one answer on this test a genealogy. And then there's Noah. And then before we get to Babel, there is a genealogy. And then after Babel, genealogy, Abraham. And so what, what, what it does is it helps keep the narrative and the focus on the story. So you don't get confused. I'm talking about creation and the fall. I'm talking about Noah. I'm talking about Babel, new beginning, Abraham, that God makes a promise to save. And what Matthew's doing here, right from the start, by the fact of there being a genealogy, beginning of his gospel, church, this is something new. This is a new story a new chapter. This isn't like what we would read in the Bible where we'd see Abraham and then Isaac comes on the scene and we read about that. And then we read Jacob and then we read Joseph and then we see Moses and then we see Joshua. And oh, here is the king kingship going from Saul to David. Here's the mantle going from Elijah to Elisha. No, this is God's revelation of salvation that was promised genealogy to God's revelation of salvation fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Something new is afoot. Christmas is that story. We think that, that history is just this simple linear line that matter came into existence and somehow we got here. Matthew is making the point that God created and something something changed. We're no longer looking forward. We are in one sense, but we're looking back. Something significant happened at the coming of Christ. And so I want you to catch a couple things from the get-go regarding this genealogy. Matthew gives us the cliff notes, verse one. He gives us the title of his work, but he also gives us the cliff notes for this genealogy. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he's going to mention David and Abraham. And then Abraham and David. Jesus, Abraham, David. Jesus, Abraham, David. It's like he got the script from the Department of Redundancy department. Matthew has a clear point. Greek, Hebrew, Spanish, English. The Bible makes it clear. Priority and importance through repetition. Matthew is making a point. This new creation Who Jesus is, this newness, this new character is very much tied to Abraham and to David. In this genealogy, there are three main characters in a slew of names. There are three sets of 14 and thus a repetition of numbers. We see unique authorial flares of details given to particular persons or time periods and to women. This genealogy has a location in it. What genealogy has a location in it? Some of you guys might be thinking, what on earth is Matthew trying to communicate here? Is this according to Hebrew MLA formatting? Is this a legit genealogy? Isn't this through Joseph's line? Don't we believe in a virgin birth? What, what, why shouldn't we, why aren't we looking at Mary? Didn't, didn't Luke's genealogy, didn't he go all the way back to Abraham? Why are we stop or Adam, Why are we stopping at Abraham? Like, why didn't Matthew just spend five more minutes and then just copy and paste the genealogies that we see? And like, why didn't he just finish the work? Well, first off, this genealogy ain't your mom, pa's ancestry.com cut of the mill genealogy. This is an artistic theological exhortation to inform us, to convict us, to comfort us. Just as the lion... Which in the wardrobe, those children had various feelings about Aslan coming. So we should have various feelings when we read this genealogy. Notice with me that the first set of fourteen and the second set of fourteen generations starts with someone that was in charge and the head of a covenant: Abraham, David, and the third one is a location marked by the whole reason why Judah, the southern kingdom, went to Babylon was because of covenant unfaithfulness. Matthew didn't just pick these people or these locations because let's let's try to see if we can find if Jesus is related to this. He's making a point. He's preaching to us. So that being said, let us look at verses 2 through 15. Point 2. The need for a king. We're going to first look at the first set of 14. Abraham, the father of God's people. This first section, verses two through six, starts with Abraham and it ends with David. That is a lot of text in our Bible that that covers. That covers Genesis all the way up to the second chapter of first Kings. And like I said, this section is significant because he's a covenant head. It starts with father Abraham who had many sons, where God makes a unilateral promise to save people to himself all the way back in Genesis 12. So why are we starting there? Why not, Adam? What's significant about Abraham? To answer that question, I'm going to give you the simplest outline I can of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 through Revelation 22. Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 through Revelation 22. Genesis 1 through 11 is the prologue in many ways for the rest of the Bible. It sets up the problem. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. He creates the ideal. We are made in his image and likeness, made to commune with him. Genesis 3, sin enters the world, cuts off this communion with God. God has to separate Well, what is this sin like? Genesis 4, sin looks to master you. It sits at the door, crouching, looking to master you, to take over your life. Oh, my goodness. Well, who has it? Noah. Everyone has it. The problem is with all of humanity. Well, what is it trying to do? Babel. Let us make a great name for ourselves. And then, a genealogy. And God makes a promise to a man who is worshiping the moon and says that, "I will make you a great, I'll make you a great nation, I'll make you a blessing, and I'll give you a land." And we read in this story from Genesis 12, over and over and over and over again, God saying, "I will, I will, I will." I will. Out of grace, he calls this man plagued with the problem of Genesis 1 through 11 and says, I'm going to save a people. So when you read Abraham, you should think of two things. Think of God saving a people and a blessing to the nations. So when Matthew in his genealogy says that he's related to Abraham, he is related to Abraham, but he's also so much more. He is himself the promised offspring of Abraham. It is Christ himself who is the possession which God promised. And he is the blessing to the nations, not a political blessing, not a financial blessing, not a comfor- comfortable living blessing, not a popularity blessing, but the blessing that your sins, the Genesis 1 through 11 problem, can be forgiven Based off the merits of the Lamb of God and not your works. Abraham and Jesus relate to today in this moment because God committed himself to saving a people from their sins. Our greatest need today, whether you recognize it or not, whether we recognize it or not, is that our sin must be dealt with. Sin removed us from communion with God which is what we were made for. Sin removed our humanity. We act in inhumane ways. People kill each other. We dehumanize people and infants and you name it. We don't act as we should because of Genesis 1 through 11. Sinfulness corrodes us. If we let it master us, It'll master our conscience, our thinking, our perception of life, our interactions with people. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we and that you were dead in the trespasses, in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. How do we know the course of this world? Genesis 1 through 11. We were dead in our sins. That started in Genesis 3. And God first promised to save a people. He made a covenant to save a people in Genesis 12. And the relevance of that is 1 Peter chapter 2. That in Christ, we became a people for God's own possession. Peter says this, You, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, that's Christmas. That text right there is impossible apart from Christ coming, the king coming. And so section one of this genealogy ends with the most important person, the second most important person in this genealogy, David the king. He is the only king. Did you note that? He's the only king mentioned in this genealogy with that title. There's a slew of kings in here. He's the only one called the king, the only one. So let's look at the second set of 14, David, the king of God's people, 14 generations, David, the son of Jesse, David, the king, towering figure in the Old Testament, not only represented the best leader for Israel, ushering in the golden age of their history, but he also represented ideal humanity in many ways. Scripture describes David not as a perfect man, not as a man without severe sin but he's described as a man after God's own heart he had small beginnings we love that i love those stories in scripture small beginnings this scrawny little brother line of others lined up no way no way this guy's going to be king well, i have one i have one more son it's david that's our guy talented in combat and military strategy talented in the arts new Torah, also profoundly aware of his need. The Davidic covenant can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and in it God promises that it will be through David's lineage and through the role of a king that God will fulfill Abraham's covenant and promise. Abraham's line, so he makes a promise to Abraham, and then later in Genesis it's through the tribe of Judah, and then we read in 2 Samuel that it's going to be through kingship, and it's going to be through David's line. The Davidic covenant promises an everlasting kingdom and a blessing to the nations through God's man, his king, which can be found in David's line. So when we think of David, we ought to think of salvation through God's rule under God's king. We ought to think of salvation through God's rule under God's king. A great Christmas text to study as a family or as an individual is Psalm 72. Write that down, study it later. We're going to look at four qualities that come from that, that psalm. Steve Wellem and Trent Hunter in their book, Christ from Beginning to End, helpfully pull out four qualities of the Davidic king that we see in this psalm. This psalm promises what will this future Davidic descendant look like? Because we love David. First, we see that whoever this son of David is, his reign will be known for its righteousness. It'll be a righteous king. This leader of God's people will typify the righteousness that God requires. God's man leading under God's rule. And we can resonate with that. We long For a righteous ruler. In a world filled with crummy ones, we need a righteous king. Second, we see in this psalm is that this king is going to be defined by an eternal reign. There's no term limits with this Davidic king. He will be reigning forever. The frailty of the human condition will not take him out. He will sit on that throne righteously forever. Third, verse 11 says this, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This Davidic king will have a universal kingdom. All people, tribes, tongues, and nations will be included under this Davidic king. And lastly, if you're not already there, Verse 12 through 14. The last quality is that he will be defined by compassion. Verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Maybe that's you this morning. You feel like you have no helper. This Davidic king offers a good word. Verse 13. He has pity on the weak and the nitty. Needy, He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. What a great king Jesus is. What a great king that we serve. And that's why we anticipate Jesus Christ. Because in our weakness, in our neediness, when we had no help, And we're well aware of our problems. Christ, this king, this qualified, righteous king, ruler. He loves to love you. He loves to provide for you. What a king we serve. The rest of that lineage in section two. Things start going downhill because we start seeing king after king after king after king after king after king. king That do not measure up. To David. And Israel, specifically Judah, starts tail spinning. And what is the last line? Verse 11, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This third section, Babylon, the unfaithfulness of God's people. The reason why Babylon is mentioned at the start of this third section is because it's tied to the covenants specifically church. We, we've been reading and studying Deuteronomy. It's tied to that because Israel was unfaithful in upholding what God commanded them. They ended up in Babylon. How can God, or how can we be a blessing to the nations if we're outside of Israel, if we're in Babylon? How on earth is God going to lead us through this Davidic descendant if we literally have no king? We, we are a, an oppressed nation inside of another nation. How will God save us if we've been delivered to Babylon? My sin, do you guys remember the temple? You remember that temple? God's presence? Yeah, my sin was the reason why that was destroyed. And then my family all had fish hooks in our mouths, tied the lines, single file led to Babylon. I'm well aware. I'm well aware of my sin. And I'm well aware that my position got me here. How is God going to be faithful to me? The nation of Israel at the point of Matthew, New Testament, they're under Roman rule. They're just a province. There's no king. And they're controlled by someone else's godless nation. Not much blessing going on. When we read Babylon, we should be thinking of a church or a people in exile due to their sin, waiting for God to give them a Messiah. I want to pause because I don't want that to go by. Babylon raised a question, and this might be a question, undoubtedly, for individuals in this room that Babylon raised, what if the serpent won? What, what if Genesis 1 through 11 was too big of a problem for Genesis 12 through Revelation 22? Is God faithful? Is sin too big? And maybe you are sitting here and you're overwhelmed by your neediness. You feel alone though you're sitting next to people. You have despair in your heart. You are taking a pause from talking to God because you you deserve it. Some self-hate is going on. Could I sin in such a way that God can't deliver me? Is there a point in which my need is too great? Does anyone get beyond shame and guilt in this life? Is, is life just a bunch of seasons of pain and suffering with a couple blips of good memories and Christmas presents? To borrow from C.S. Lewis, maybe you feel like it's always winter, but never Christmas. As a Christian, is there a point in which God's discipline in which you think that God's discipline has turned to embittered hatred because of your perpetual neediness. Never. When Christ came on Christmas morning, what did the angels say to the shepherd? What do they say to the shepherds? Fear not. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And that's the message of Christmas for you this morning. Fear not, Christian. I have good news. I have good news. There is no power greater, no enemy who can overcome the king of kings. Blessed is the man or woman or child who trusts in this king. For the Christian, this is your good news. Romans 8. All scripture is inspired, but pound for pound. If I'm suffering, send me Romans 8. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all? Things, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? You feel needy? You feel condemned. You feel shame. You recognize that you're before a holy, righteous God. Jesus came and he died so that he might intercede in your neediness. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or stress, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That being said, do you feel like you're being slaughtered? Am I just suffering needlessly in this life with this sin, with my need? All I'm just stuck in a box with my sin and my neediness, and I don't see God's will or purpose in this. What does God say to you, Christian? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, anxious Christian for you, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christmas turns <laughs> Christmas turns weeping and sorrow and dismay and waiting into joy the sins of god's people are dealt with on the cross and our winter has turned to christmas what a king We serve, and he has come. The arrival of the king, verse 16 through 17. Matthew completes this list of genealogies with the main character of his gospel, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. But notice how he gets there. I love this verse. As you're reading this genealogy, it moves from 30,000 feet down to the neighborhood block. You get Abraham. You get David. Babylon. Joseph, the husband of Mary. I know those people. That's what this story's about. We're about to read the story. I, I love Joseph. I love Mary. This is the nativity scene. We learn about Joseph in the next verses in the next story. But we're prepared for Mary and the genealogy. Matthew has been preparing his readers for the entrance of Mary through the reference of women in this genealogy. This isn't like, uh, <laughs> this isn't a social agenda, Matthew, coming in here. We need more women in this genealogy. You know, uh, stick it to the man. It's not what he's getting at. The point And contrary to popular opinions on Jewish genealogies, it's not totally uncommon or unheard of to have women in genealogies. It doesn't disqualify the validity of the genealogy. The point is to serve, theologically inform the story of Mary, four women mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who had two primary prominent distinctions. They had scandalous and or irregular marital unions, and they were Gentile. Tamar and Rahab, Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba is referenced by her husband in this genealogy, Uriah the Hittite. So why is Matthew mentioning this? Two reasons. To defend Mary, amidst her scandalous pregnancy and her foundational position in redemptive history, and secondly, to show that the gospel includes the nations. God's promise to Abraham is seen in sparks in this genealogy. These Gentile women were central and included in God's people. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the blessing to the nations. And so this Mary, the Mary who's the talk of the town, saying that she's pregnant, though she's not married with Joseph yet, she's highly favored by God. She's right in the middle of where God intends her to be. Centuries in the making, Mary, just think about it. Just think about it. The amount of stress that young woman had? Everybody talking about her. Lord, why me? Please remove this from me. If only Matthew, we could just give her the genealogy. Look how you are right in the middle of where God wants you to be. And how often when we suffer or we have pressures, we go, oh my goodness, there's no, I must be a thousand miles from where God's working. Or, You could be smack dab in the middle of it. And that's the encouragement that we see with Mary. Christ isn't a part of Israel's history. He is the culmination of it. And this masterful genealogy proves that title in verse 1. Literally meaning anointed one, Jesus came with a specific reason. Now, think about Christ. It means anointed, anointed one. Now, think about Saul. Think about David. When they were chosen, what happened? They were anointed, a kingly anointing. No different with King Jesus. This is the anointed son of David. But what does this king mean? Oh, oh, this is, you know, have you ever thought... Um, We'll get to that. What does this king mean as we anticipate Christmas? I think the first thing and the whole point of this whole passage is that we might rejoice because the king has come to save sinners. The good news of this text, the good news of this, if it's not already apparent, (laughs) is that Jesus is that answer to the Genesis 1 through 11 problem. God has been working he planted an acorn which grew into an oak tree. Small promises, small beginnings. God is faithful all the way to the coming of Jesus. He came to solve our sin problem. He came to save us through himself. This blessing was a person. It was a descendant of This king is the gospel. This king is the lamb. This king is the savior. He's the priest. He's my comfort. He's my substitute. And he's also the blessing to the nations, which everyone in this room should say, amen. Gentiles are included in this. The one who holds the throne for eternity for all peoples is a righteous king and a compassionate king. And we are a needy people like Babylon. This text, Babylon is us. We're faithless Judah. And we stand condemned by our sin. And we know it. And if you're fragile today because of your your knowledge of your sin, Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God being rich in anger, hatred, indifference, apathy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, Christian, throw the shame away. By grace, you have been saved. That's what Christmas is about. God's grace and his mercy and his love lavished willingly, knowingly, lovingly on you. In your need, no cleaning up, faith. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness, and that is no different for you. God receives glory through the salvation of sinners from every nation. And yet there is a profound response and need in light of today's what-you-feel-makes-it-real culture. Jesus is saving individuals, but he is saving a nation. He is ushering in a kingdom. Individuals who make up a people. And nations have cultures. They have laws. They have a manner of doing doing things. There is a corporate identity. And for the kingdom of heaven, that's Christ-likeness. It's not some vague or indescribable feeling or a plurality of equal and equally valid experiences, whatever that means. More often the case, those equally valid lifestyles of Christianity are just individuals wanting to be kings of their own kingdom. And you do you doesn't work in the kingdom of heaven. You honor Christ Christ is more fitting for the Christian to say. It's so taboo in our culture to be corrected or to have dialogue because we're so individualistic. it, It is an idol in our culture. Don't you dare talk to me about me or dare say what I'm doing is wrong. That's my truth. Don't help me nuance my thinking. Don't correct my experience. Don't speak into my life. Scripture is just so unclear on this point. Well, let's open up the Bible. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. The son of David has good news for you. Your identity and your worth are not found in your self-expression or your autonomy, but in the steadfast love and faithfulness of King Jesus' victory in the cross. That's your identity, Christian. What unites us Your identity and your worth are not found in your expression or autonomy, but in the steadfast love and faithfulness of King Jesus' victory on the cross, where he died in your place knowing your need, and he receives all the glory, not from saving perfect people, but having mercy on the needy. In a day and age where authority is distrusted, where wolves of the church, true wolves of the church would say that the gospel is a liberation from empowered community, that the gospel is a libertarian freedom to be autonomous, a king over your own kingdom. The the Christmas message says otherwise. It says this, behold the king, the righteous king, the eternal king, the compassionate king. All nations and peoples serve Him, for salvation is found in Him alone. Have you ever considered how much the Old Testament defines Jesus? I think that we can get into this. I I, I sometimes get it, like the the um, I don't know some Jesus films where uh, where He is just this this meek and lowly fair skinned guy that just is like you don't he could cry if you, you know, gave him a slap on the back. Like that's, the Jesus of the Old Testament is the king. He's the king. And we can think that Jesus is my doctor or that he's my vending machine to give me answers for all my prayer requests or that he's my therapist that I confess my sins to or that he's my, my savior, that goes right here. And he's my priest, he intercedes for me before God on this table and, and I'll kind of do my thing over here and when I need him, I'll go over here. But when we say that Jesus is king, the table is his. When when Christ says, flee temptation, you're not an advisor to the king. Well, let's talk about it. You're not on the board of directors. You're a subject to the best of kings, but you're a subject. Your role is, is to submit. When King Jesus says, do not forsake the gathering, it's your king that is saying that. Our faith isn't a part-time faith. It's an all-of-life thing. All of my everything at all times under his reign. And if the hairs on the back of your neck like bristle at that, like, oh, be, be subject to Jesus, I like agree with that, but that sounds really harsh, Caleb. That is the culture That is speaking and whispering into your ear. You have an allegiance to the best king, but you are called to be subject to him. He is gracious. He is full of mercy. But why would you be stealing bread from the table in the king's courts? He is an authority. If I'm a citizen of heaven, if he is my king, every decision should be informed by that undeserved grace from the King of Kings. He loves me. He died for me. He invites me to sit at his his table as family. He changed my life. Why wouldn't I give him my everything? The Christmas story is that the greatest news is not me being the king of the hill, which I'm guilty of that, or of grace empowering me to do whatever I want because Jesus died on the cross, substitutionary atonement, he paid for my sin, I can, I can just do it. The good news is that my, my needy soul can find refuge in this great king, this blessing, this blessed king. For those who know C.S. Lewis's story of the Lion Witch and the Wardrobe, when Aslan does come, the world of Narnia, does change. Winter turned to Christmas. And Matthew's gospel, remember the book of Genesis, this new Genesis, this king, this promised seed of Abraham. Well, he shows us what happens after he came and he died and he rose again. If you would turn to Matthew 28, verse 16, and you're going to see this genealogy in this text remember Babylon, remember need, remember neediness, remember God's promise, remember his fulfillment. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples, there once was twelve, now there's eleven, went to Galilee, to the mountain on which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, King of kings. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded as king. And behold, Christian, this is what we're taking. This is what we're taking out of this room. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These broken, doubting 11 men Not 12, were encouraged with the authority and the mission of the King and of his promised compassionate presence to the end of this age when he will come again to save us. His presence, where I'm with you always, that's a comfort. It's not a terror. This isn't a micromanaging boss. This is. This is the good and kind King who shows compassion. All authority has been given to Jesus. And the blessing is not in a physical state in a couple weeks, it's not in the presence. It's not even in having everybody in the family come together. The blessing of Christmas is that our sins are forgiven because Christ came and he comes again. Let's pray. King Jesus, we adore you. We love you. And we stand as needy people in need of a great Savior. And we thank you, Father. We thank you, God, that you would send the Son in view of our need, to meet our need, and to bless us despite the lack of blessing we bring. We thank you, for the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides with us, Lord. And we look, we look for that promised day when you will return to save us finally from a world full of war and sickness and trouble where you're going to re- reunite us with you. Lord, come quickly. May I pray? Amen.